following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity to hear your word. I pray that it would be for the exaltation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we might be reminded of your beauty this morning so that we might be compelled to pursue your burden on this earth to reach the nations for your name. We ask for your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. The title of the message this morning is The Exalted Christ Commissions His Church. The Exalted Christ Commissions His Church. And I would invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And if you're able to stand, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to be reading Acts 1, 1 through 8. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Please have a seat. Thank you. I want to commend Elder Jim Barnfather for his reading of Scripture this morning and for a very, very fitting introduction into our message. Um, as he was sharing, I was just impressed with the need to continue to behold the glory of Christ and his deity so that we are compelled to pursue his mission on this earth. Amen. And I came across an article recently that put together some of the popular opinions about Jesus over the years. And this survey made the point that no person in the history of the world has been more controversial than Jesus. More songs and books have been written about Jesus than any other person in the history of mankind. He has been the object of so much tension and hatred over so many years. Not only was he so hated during his own lifetime to the point that they killed him, but since his time, his followers have been tortured and killed publicly or privately. And he goes on to talk about some of the popular opinions, and we're not going to take time to quote some of those right now. Even today in our culture, there exists so much confusion about the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not true? But if there is one thing that we can agree on, it is this, beloved. Listen, either Jesus is who he claimed to be, and we all need to listen very closely, or 
He was the biggest fool that ever walked on this earth making the claims that he made. This is the point that C.S. Lewis came to in his own life journey. Concerning Jesus' claims, C.S. Lewis wrote the following, quote, A man like Jesus who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. Jesus has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. I agree with him, with the point that C.S. Lewis makes. Given Jesus' words and works, we only have two choices. Either we embrace him or we reject him. There's no middle ground. And yet for all of the popular opinions about Jesus, even the positive ones from secular individuals around the world, we have to be reminded this morning, and Elder Jim Barnfather already started the process, and then Pastor Tim Adams with the worship team got us going further along. We must be reminded that Jesus is far greater, far more majestic and superior and exalted than any common opinion. Amen? If you have spiritual eyes to see, you can see that about Christ. And as Christians, we don't allow the popular opinions of our culture to define Jesus for us. We go to the scriptures. What does the Bible say about Christ? What does the Bible say about our King? In Philippians chapter 2, we read this. God, the Father, highly exalted Jesus. And bestowed on him, the, on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Who is this Jesus? Colossians 1.15 says this, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That speaks of preeminence. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. The term head signifies sovereign ruler, authority. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will, have to, will come to have first place in everything. Christ is the preeminent one, the supreme Lord of the universe. He is the exalted king, beloved. He is our king. And there is no conflict with speaking about Christ's preeminence with God the Father, is there? Colossians 1.19 says that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. And Acts 2.32 says this, God made Jesus both Lord and Christ. So there's no conflict in the heart of the Father in exalting His Son over the church at this stage in redemptive history, is there? You see, if there's one thing we learn about Jesus from the pages of Scripture and the picture that the Bible gives us of Christ is that we don't worship some wimpy punk figure that our popular culture calls Jesus. Do we? 
Since Jesus is Lord, we ought to worship him as Lord. We worship the Jesus of the Bible. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, is he not? We worship the supreme Lord of the church who has come in the flesh in order that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We behold the the glory of God in the very face of Christ. How beautiful is that? And listen, beloved, since Jesus is the exalted and supreme Lord of the church, doesn't it follow that he should have the last say as to what his church should be about? Yes or no? Since Jesus is Lord, doesn't it follow that our continual consideration would be to keep Jesus' words at the very forefront of our hearts and our endeavors individually and corporately as a church? Beloved, if Jesus is Lord, listen to me. Any human agenda is subordinate or irrelevant in view of Jesus' orders. You see, as Christians and as a church, we can spend so much of our time wasting our time on this earth. We think we have many, many years left to live. So we waste our time and energy. We fall prey to the wasting our resources in things that are important but peripheral, frankly. Things like careers and prosperity and happiness in the stuff of life, personal fulfillment and success, personal accolades. These things are not evil in and of themselves, but they are subordinate to the orders of Jesus, the Lord of the church. And at the end of the day, many of these pursuits, if we stop and examine carefully, reveal to us that we are more about serving self than about exalting and serving Christ. Life does not revolve around our agendas, around our selfish pursuits, but around Christ's mission for His church here on earth. That's why we're here. And one day when the Lord returns, He will want to know how we fulfilled His mission here on earth of making disciples as individuals and as a church. He will want to know that. And here in Acts 1, I want us to be reminded and challenged once again That there is a greater purpose, beloved, why you are here. Why we are here corporately as a church. Because in the final parting words of the Lord Jesus to his beloved apostles, we see what is most important to the heart of the Lord Jesus. Have you ever imagined yourself on your deathbed? What would you say to the people that you love the most on your deathbed? What would you say to them? It really allows us to pinpoint uh, our, our ability to be able to say what is most important, right? If I had my wife and my kids there, I would want to say, just love Christ and serve Him. Please, guys, turn from your sins. Kids, there's nothing but be- I've lived life. There's no one better, no one more beautiful than Christ, more satisfying than Christ. That's the kind of message I would give my kids and my beloved wife. And here we get an opportunity to hear what is most precious to the heart of our Lord, our ascended, exalted, risen Christ. What does He want His church to be occupied with here on earth? And if you are a Christian this morning, I want to remind you and help you understand that your Christian life is all about serving His purposes, not your own. Not your own. Acts 1 records the parting words of Jesus and the mission He gave us 
That is to be the central focus and the concern of our personal and corporate life. Luke wrote Acts to a man in Theophilus, most likely a high-ranking Roman official. In Luke 1.3, Luke refers to Theophilus as the most excellent Theophilus, which was a typical title when addressing a high-ranking official. And in writing to Theophilus, Luke refers to the Gospel of Luke, his first work, as his first account. So the book of Acts essentially is volume two of Luke's writings. And as such, the book of Acts describes the beginning and the growth of a new living organism called what? The church. And in Jesus' parting words of Acts 1, I want us to see that the Lord Jesus fully commissioned his church. But as the exalted Christ, he has provided everything that we need to carry on his work. And I want us to see three provisions that the exalted Christ gave for his church to carry out her mission of making disciples. Three provisions we see here in this passage. And if you are a Christian, beloved, listen to me. If you know Christ and Jesus is Lord of your life, I want to remind you as we go through these three different provisions that his mission demands your maximum participation. You are not called to be a passive spectator, but a proactive participant of the Lord's mission. Amen? That's why we're here. If you didn't know that, now you do. First of all, we see this. The exalted Christ has provided his church with a glorious purpose. A glorious purpose. And that is to continue his work. We have a glorious purpose. In the midst of all of life's distractions, how easy it is to forget why we're here. And I want you to notice the grand purpose for Luke writing his own gospel. Look at verse 1. The first account I can post Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. The first observation that we make from this verse is this. Jesus' ministry on earth was only the beginning. What Luke tells us here is that he wrote his gospel for the glorious purpose of telling about Jesus, about his words and his works, about everything that he did and he taught, the things that he said and how he lived what he preached. In Luke's gospel, we see the ultimate humble servant, Jesus, speaking life-giving words and doing marvelous works, all pointing to the greatness of his person. Jesus was Luke's focal point. But the implication here is that Jesus' ministry is not finished. He says, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. You say, what? Jesus said at the cross that his work was finished, did he not? Yes, his redemptive work is finished, isn't it? Jesus came, perfectly fulfilled the Father's will, suffered and died at the cross, fully satisfying the wrath of God for our sins. He rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. That was his redemptive work. But the culmination of his kingdom here on earth is not finished yet, is it? He's not done. He's inaugurated his kingdom if you want to put it that way. But it is not culminated yet. So the second observation we see here is this. The church exists to continue Jesus' work on earth. Jesus' words and his works are to continue. Notice that a transition takes place right before Jesus' ascension in verse 2. Look there. 
after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So upon Jesus' ascension, the orders are given, and a baton, as in a race, a relay race, is passed on to the apostles, right? And to others who saw him. And then that baton is passed on to other followers of Christ in the book of Acts. And then other followers of Christ take that baton and keep running with that baton. And we see that by the end of the book of Acts, Paul finds himself in Rome freely, even though incarcerated, freely preaching the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. Did they continue the race? Yes. And the baton has been passed on to us. And we will pass on the baton to somebody else. And one day we are waiting for the the anchor runner, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take that baton and finish the race. The only difference is, is that we win. We already know we're going to win. But we're waiting for the anchor of the race, the Lord Jesus Christ. Victory is guaranteed. So the implication here is that Acts will be a continuation of the works and the words of Jesus. And beloved, I remind you, Christ is presently working, is he not? He is presently working. How so? He is saving people by His Spirit. He's restoring people. He's healing broken lives. He's healing people from devastating sins and delivering people from slavery to sin. He's comforting and helping and so forth and so forth. However, He's no longer doing it in human visible form, but He's doing it by His Spirit, working in and through His followers who are who? His church, His body. The church exists for the glorious purpose of continuing the work of Christ here on earth. And if you are a believer this morning, you are part of God's church and part of God's mission. It's not your mission. It's not my mission. It's God's mission and we get to be a part of it. Amen? However, I fear that the problem is not that you and I don't know that we have work to do. I don't think that the problem is that we've never heard these things. You say, Campus, tell me something I don't know. This is not very original. Well, I don't want to give you anything original. Otherwise, we'd have problems in the pulpit. Right? This is stuff you've heard before. The problem is not you don't know what you need to do. The problem is that we are not compelled and gripped by the person of Christ enough so that you you and I are so captivated by the beauty of Christ so as to be compelled by His burden. That's the problem, beloved. We are not captivated by the beauty of Christ enough so that we are compelled to fulfill His burden of making disciples here on earth. That's our problem. And this beholding of Christ's beauty and glory is what Jesus reveals to His apostles all the more before commissioning them for their mission. Watch this. Verse 3 says this. To these, the apostles, he also presented himself alive, that is, risen after his suffering by many, watch this, convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. The idea is periodically over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. The word proofs there in verse 3 has this idea of convincing someone in a decisive manner so as to compel to action. I marvel at the fact that Jesus had spent three plus years with his disciples. And then here periodically for another 40 days after his resurrection. Do you catch this? These apostles and some others had an awesome opportunity to see the risen Lord in a physical, visible, resurrected body. How amazing is that? That is amazing. 
Not the wimpy Jesus of today's evangelism, all right? But the risen, majestic, glorious, exalted, and ascended Christ. They had the privilege of beholding the glory of the risen Christ, eating with Him, and talking with Him, and touching Him. And they would never be the same as the rest of the Acts of the Apostles tells, right? They would never be the same. Common, uneducated people, by and large, who were unskilled in speech, not prestigious or outwardly impressive. But one thing they had is that they were consumed and captivated by the glory of Christ. Catch it. The Lord of the church. And they were compelled to continue his work. I believe that Jesus wanted his disciples to be so convinced and so captivated by his resurrection and exaltation that they had to speak about the ascended Christ. Otherwise, they would literally explode. They were going to preach about a risen, exalted Christ, not a dead one. Not a dead one. And they were going to complete their work here on this earth as long as Christ had them here. And beloved, we have work to do as well. But our problem is not that we don't know that. It is the fact that we don't treasure Christ in our hearts enough so as to find Him so compelling that we want to go and fulfill our purpose here on earth. And I submit to you that the greatest need of every person on this planet and every person here at Calvary Bible Church, it is this, that we behold the beauty of the glory of Christ all the more. That is our greatest need. Because if we as believers are not passionate about Jesus' mission... It is because we are not passionate about Christ's person and work. That's the problem. We need to get to the root of the issue, right? The danger of our Southern California culture, especially Burbank, and especially close to Hollywood, it is that we buy into an attraction model of ministry. That's a huge danger. We point people to our smorgasbord of programs, our great resources. We tell people that if they come to our churches, they won't be disappointed because we're going to meet their every single need. What's the problem with that? What is their greatest need? Jesus. The greatest need is Jesus and his word. Amen. That's a person's greatest need. This is why we can't buy into an attraction model of ministry. We need to remember that however we draw people to our churches is how we are going to keep them here, beloved. That's how we're going to keep them here. Some people might be here for a time because we meet all of their selfish wants, but not because they want to know and love Christ. And they're willing to lay down their lives for Him and for His mission. We must share with them and model through our lives the beauty of the all-satisfying Lord Jesus, the one who demands genuine worship and our infinite delight. The exalted Lord Jesus who sets the captives free from sin and eternal separation from their Creator. That Jesus right there. Amen? This is the Christ that we must herald, not the popular Jesus of our Western culture. What does our Western culture say? They've created some wimpy character and they call him Jesus. A Jesus who exists to meet my every selfish want and desire. A Jesus who gives me health, wealth, and prosperity for all of my selfish purposes. Because he would never want me in uncomfortable situations. He would never want to allow trials in my life. Heaven forbid that. A Jesus who's a cosmic genie who gives me everything that I want 
After all, his greatest concern, he revolves his life around my comfort and my happiness and my fulfillment. That Jesus of our Western culture. We are not about that Christ. We are about the Christ who is high and exalted in the Word of God. Amen? That Jesus. He's not our personal psychologist who exists to, to always listen to us with our selfish wants and desires, who would never place any personal responsibility upon us. He would never place any demands upon our life that would actually cost us something. That's not the Jesus of the Bible at all. And Christ primarily reveals himself on the very pages of Scripture. See, we don't study our Bibles because it is some mystical book of dead religion, do we? We study the Word of God, the Bible, because it reveals a beautiful, high, and exalted person. But that is where the heart of the problem lies. We're not accustomed to meditating upon God's Word and beholding His beauty and glory in the fast-paced culture in which we live. One believer has made this observation. Quote, we seldom hear of people talk today about beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus. We seldom hear messages on meditation, and too seldom do we practice this, this holy art ourselves. People seem to have a horror of being alone for 10 minutes and appear almost incapable of closing the closet door, as our Lord admonished us to do in the Sermon on the Mount, and thinking quietly without interruption upon the infinite glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. You see, beloved, only when we're so captivated by the glory of Christ and so gripped by the Christ of the Bible, the risen and exalted one, and we grow in our knowledge and intimate relationship with him, then we are going to be compelled to fulfill our mission because we love him dearly, do we not? This is why the early Christians who were persecuted for proclaiming the gospel Basically, in the midst opposition and persecution, would basically continue to do their work. Sorry, we simply cannot stop telling you about Jesus. Don't you get it? He's risen. Wake up. Wake up, person. He is glorious and exalted. He's coming back to judge. If you don't turn from your sin and turn to Christ, wake up. That was their message. Why? Because they had beheld Christ. They, were, they, they lived by the conviction of His person and His work and His mission for their lives. They live for a higher purpose, a more glorious purpose, beloved, than we tend to live for. So we have a glorious purpose as a church to continue the work of Christ here on earth. But we cannot do this on our own strength, can we? We need mighty power. Mighty power. The exalted Christ, secondly, has provided His church with mighty power to continue His work. Mighty power. I want you to see this. Look at verse 4. In gathering them together, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Why? But to wait for what the Father had promised, which, He said, you heard of from Me. Verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with who? With the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The greatest obstacle to fulfilling our mission on the earth will be self-reliance and self-sufficiency. When we begin to trust in our own abilities. And as a church, we will not fulfill the purpose of our existence if we are not relying upon the Spirit of God. And what we learn from the Lord Jesus Himself and the way that He lived life 
If we learn anything about our Lord is that he was, in his humanity, he was not a self-reliant person. It is remarkable that during Jesus' ministry on earth, he never sinned. He never sinned. He was perfect in thought, in word, in action, in motive in his humanity. And guess what? In his humanity, Jesus lived in the power and the energy of who? Of who? Of the Holy Spirit. Upon his baptism, didn't the Holy Spirit descend upon him as a dove? And who took him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? The Spirit of God. He was, Jesus lived and set the example for us of dependence upon the Holy Spirit in his own life and ministry. And that pattern of living in total dependence upon the Spirit, he passes on to his disciples here in Acts chapter 1. I mean, you would think that after three plus, year, plus years of walking with Jesus, I mean, that's the ultimate seminary right there. That's the ultimate seminary. Your teacher is Christ. Whoa, I'd love to go to that seminary. I give up my degree at the other one for that right there. After three plus years of walking with Jesus and then 40 days of teaching and revelation from the risen Christ, the apostles are ready to go conquer the world. They're like, hey, we have the knowledge. We're passionate. We're energetic. We're ready to go conquer the world. I mean, they were mostly a bunch of 20-something-year-olds. And we know 20-something-year-olds are ready to go conquer the world, right? But Jesus says, you are not ready. You cannot do my work on your own. You need power outside of yourself. Look at verse 4. Jesus' specific command is that they wait. Wait for what? To wait for what the Father had promised. Jesus had previously told his disciples that the Father would send the Holy Spirit, the helper, the guide, the comforter in John chapters 14 through 16. They knew about this. It is clear that this is the Holy Spirit that he's talking about. Because verse 5, notice there, says this. The reason why they must remain in Jerusalem is for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Why the Spirit? Because the Spirit brings divine strengthening and power and enablement for ministry. That's why. It's evident that the focus is on the strengthening that the Spirit was going to bring. Look at verse 8. But you will receive what? You will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The word translated power in verse 8 is the same word from which we get our English word dynamite. Dynamite. See, the major emphasis here and throughout the book of Acts and the 60 plus references to the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit would arrive and provide divine strengthening for the mission. You cannot continue my work, Jesus says, on your own. You need to be filled with power for this difficult, glorious purpose of continuing my work. So the difference in these individuals, as you see Acts unfolding, this is the same Peter who denies Jesus three times, but later on you see him standing up for Christ. This is Peter now post-dynamite. I mean, he's filled with the Spirit of God. He's empowered for life and ministry now. Amazing. So they were supernaturally empowered, and only because they're supernaturally empowered could they withstand the early opposition. And there were a lot of attacks on the early believers. They were so gripped and impacted by the risen Christ and so empowered by the Spirit that in Acts chapter 4.19, listen to this, Peter, wimpy Peter, 
And Acts chapter 419 speaks to the religious leaders with all boldness and says this, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Such boldness. Same Peter who denied Jesus three times. Same guy. Later on in in Acts, they experience opposition again. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, listen to this. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and as a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. Whoa, watch out. You don't want some of this because we have the Holy Spirit. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. What drives that kind of fearlessness, beloved? It's divine empowering, is it not? It's divine empowering. That's what's going on with these lowly peasant apostles. They're so gripped by the person of Christ, so supernaturally empowered by the Spirit, that amidst persecution, they were willing to lay down their lives for their Lord. Willing to lay down their lives for Him. So when you have supernatural strength and boldness and joy in your mission, it is because you are walking in accordance with the Holy Spirit, right? If you're fulfilling His will, if you're proclaiming the gospel. What a beautiful thing that is. Listen, there is no power to live the Christian life, let alone the power to save anyone apart from the Spirit of God, right? None. You've heard of miraculous stories. Every story of conversion is is a miracle. But there are some who kind of stand out. A a couple of years ago, I heard the testimony of a man who had been married to a believing, a Christian woman for 30 plus years. 30 plus years. And this man was an staunch atheist, mocking her daily, verbally abusing her, her faith and her Christian friends and all of her activities. And one day to get her to shut up, he goes to the church with her. Oh, yeah. And he hears the bomb of the gospel. He hears about Christ. And then she she invites him to go to a potluck afterward. So they go to this potluck where a pastor is there and other believers. And he sees the way that they're loving each other. And he sees the transforming power of the gospel. So he's heard the bomb of the gospel in the service. The word of God. And now he's seen believers living out the gospel and their love for one another. And they go home, and that night, she hears somebody weeping in the living room. And she runs over to the living room because she had never heard him cry before. It's like, what's the matter? Why are you crying? And he says, I can't believe that Christ died for a sinner like me. I can't believe it. I've blasphemed his name. I have gone after you over and over again. I can't believe that he, he has saved me. And I can't believe that those people love each other like that. How could somebody love each other like that? They obviously have defects, but they love one another. He broke. He broke. He could not believe that Christ had died for him. A blasphemer like him. Just like that, the Spirit took a hold of this man's heart, beloved. Listen, he took a a hold of this man's rock heart and he made it a Plato heart. Soft and tender. That is the mighty power of the Spirit of God working through His Word, right? 
and working through his people too, living out the gospel in word and deed. And can I remind you of something? The Spirit's mighty power is the same power that works within you if you know Christ. Paul makes this amazing statement in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Now to him, that is God, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. I mean, Paul is piling on words here, describing, uh, praising the power of God in his plan of salvation. And then he makes this statement here. According to the power that works, what? Within us. Interesting. Say what? You mean to tell me, Paul, that God's mighty power is the power that works within me? Yes. If you know Christ, you have been empowered to overcome sin, to put the deeds of the flesh to death in the power of the Spirit. You have been empowered to be able to proclaim the gospel to people and not fear their intimidation, but to be a sound witness of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. You have the strength, the dynamite within you to accomplish that. Amen? If you know Christ, if you know Christ, the Spirit of God has permanently come to reside in you since the moment of your conversion. That's what it means to be baptized into the Spirit. You are immersed into the body of Christ. You come into union with Christ and other believers by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Before Acts 1 and 2, the Spirit's ministry was characterized by a temporary empowering of individuals for specific ministry tasks. But since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, listen, upon a person's new birth, comes to permanently reside in you if you are a Christian. Permanently makes his home in your heart. How precious is that? So that Romans 8, 9 says this, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. Conversely, if you know Christ, the Spirit lives in you and empowers you for ministry, and you belong to who? To God. How beautiful is that? We need God's mighty power, beloved, to accomplish our mission. And that's what the Holy Spirit has come to do. So the question in your life is not, do I have the strength to overcome sin in my life? What is the answer to that? Yes. Yes. In the power of the Spirit, by the guidance and instruction of God's mighty word. The question is not, am I able to fulfill God's purpose and mission of making disciples here on earth? What's the answer to that? Yes, you do. You have the power to fulfill your purpose here on earth, the grand purpose of making disciples for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, are we plugging into the divine energy source, the almighty Holy Spirit by his word and prayer? The absence of a consistent devotion to God in prayer and His Word, beloved, means that we are living the Christian life in our own strength and in our own abilities. There's no power for anything at that point. How do we expect to be in tune with fulfilling our mission if we're not listening to God's Word, deeply meditating upon it, and communicating with God in prayer? And then responding in loving obedience to His Word, walking step in step with the Spirit of God, submitting ourselves to the Spirit's leading in our lives by loving obedience. So we have mighty power 
to accomplish our glorious purpose. And thirdly, I want you to see that the exalted Christ has provided his church with a bold proclamation. A bold proclamation. We are witnesses of Christ. Notice what happens here in verse 6. The disciples ask a very logical question. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? By this time, the antennas of the disciples would have been fully engaged. This is a very logical, reasonable question. Because according to passages like Ezekiel 36 and others, the Spirit's arrival signified that the Messiah was here. So if the Messiah is here and the Spirit is coming, Lord, then what follows is the restoration of Israel, right? The fulfillment of all the promises God made to Israel and the ushering in of a political kingdom and abundant blessing upon Israel. Right, Lord? Eh. Wrong, says Jesus. Time out. Jesus answers them in verse 7. He says to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. This is a very gracious way of saying the timing is none of your business, apostles. The timing of God's restoration of all things belongs only to my Father. He had told them that in Mark 13, 32. Only the Father knew the exact times concerning the end of everything. Their job was to simply be prepared and be pursuing his mission. Jesus' response here does not deny that one day Israel will be restored and the promises of a literal physical kingdom on earth will be fulfilled in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, right? He does not deny that. But what Jesus does do is tell his disciples what they need to focus upon now. There is work to do. There is a task at hand. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, that is locally, and in all Judea and Samaria, regionally, and even to the remotest part of the earth, globally. And that third bracket is where we fit in. Yes, this was first and foremost a specific uh, command to the apostles, but as the rest of the book of Acts unfolds for us, it is also the mission of others who follow Christ, right? And us as well. We fit under that third category or locale, even to the remotest part of the earth. As Revelation says that in heaven, there will be redeemed from every nation and tongue and tribe. How does that happen unless people over the over centuries have been preaching the gospel and people have been coming to know Christ? There will be nations there of every tongue and tribe. You see, now that Jesus was on the verge of departing, the kingdom of God was to be the sole occupation of the disciples. He had told them about that throughout his life. And now over over 40 days of appearing to them, in verse 3 he says that Jesus had spent much time speaking to his disciples of things concerning the kingdom of God. This was nothing new to them. But this was the heart of Jesus. This was what was closest to his heart. He spoke to them of his father's kingdom, of God's divine rule and reign. In terms of the bigger picture, yes, Jesus specifically came to redeem mankind for the glory of God. But the bigger picture of that is that Jesus came to inaugurate his father's kingdom. Did he not? He inaugurated his father's kingdom to redeem a holy people for God's own possession and kingdom. And one day he's returning to usher in the culmination of his kingdom. Amen? How beautiful is that? 
The question is, how is this kingdom going to grow? As Jesus is ascending and departing to the right hand of the Father, Jesus says, you are going to be my witnesses. Very interesting word, witness here. Translates a Greek word from which we get our English word, martyr. And the reason for this translation is because so many Christians in the early church were dying for their faith that the word Christian became synonymous with death. The word has the idea of testifying of someone, of teaching people about a person through word and deed, of advancing someone's cause in word and deed. So rather than focusing on timing, Jesus says, don't worry about the time of these things. You get on with your business of proclaiming the message of salvation and the forgiveness of sin. And they did that. They did that. We find Paul at the end of Acts chapter 28 incarcerated. But in chapter 28 of Acts, it says that he was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Did they fulfill their mission? Oh, yeah. Are we going to fulfill our mission of boldly proclaiming the gospel, beloved? Are we going to do that? This is Jesus' heartbeat, his father's kingdom. And like a heart monitor is to mirror the heartbeat of a person, so the church is meant to mirror the heartbeat of Jesus. If you love Christ, one day he will return, and will you be able to tell him, Lord, I was faithful to finishing my race. And the little insignificant but greatly significant part that you had me play in your mission. Will we be able to do that? In the same way that this early church was sent out to witness for Christ, so are we. We're ministers of the gospel. Listen, we represent the truth of Christ to our neighborhoods, to our cities, to our country, to the rest of the world. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, I believe in it. Then I believe that this church is here in a particular neighborhood for a reason. Amen? I believe in the sovereignty of God and that doctrine teaches me that God is not surprised by us being here. We are in a particular neighborhood around certain businesses, certain demographics in order to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved. Let's not be comfortable. You are in particular neighborhoods where you are living. You are in a particular job, etc., so that you are reaching people for Christ. Are you doing that? Recognize the opportunities before us to impact the region for Christ and then to impact for Christ globally. So our mission, as it was for the apostles, is not to be idle. It's to take the good news of salvation to a lost and dying world, even to the remotest part of the earth. In that sense, we are doing kingdom work, are we not? The church is Christ's agent to expand God's kingdom. We are so short-sighted. We are so short-sighted. We need to remember that there's a rebel kingdom right now. There's a rebel kingdom. And even the Lord, though the Lord Jesus inaugurated His kingdom and finished His redemptive work, He Himself said, My kingdom is not of this world. 1 John 5.19 says, And we know we are of God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So when Christ came, He inaugurated His Father's kingdom by His finished work here on earth. But his kingdom is not culminated yet. He's coming back and he will want to know how have we invested ourselves into his kingdom in anticipation of his return. He will want to know that from us. And there is nothing special or innovative about our proclamation. 
These Christians simply obeyed and they went out and they proclaimed the message of this God, eternal sovereign God who created the worlds and everything in them, who set forth a, a plan in motion. And everybody is accountable to this creator God. And there is no one who can love God supremely with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do they show that? In the sinful actions that they have. In the sinful thoughts that they have. In the sinful attitudes. In the living for self rather than the living for Him. Everybody is a sinner. There is none good. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for this Creator. That's the message that they proclaimed. But they didn't leave it there. They, they started speaking about the, the hope of Christ. But God, in His love, sent His Son into the world. He suffered. He fully fulfilled His Father's perfect will, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death for you, but rose victoriously conquering sin and death for you. So that the cycle of sin and death is broken if you are in Christ. So they gave people the message of the hope of Christ. But they didn't let him weasel out of it. You know what they said? That message demands a response from you. You must repent. God is now declaring through his son, the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, that everyone must repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your wickedness. Or you will have to stand before the judge and embrace Christ. Embrace him. All that you are in your sin. For all that he is. Amen? And the message that they proclaimed is when you come to the cross, as one, to Christ, as one pastor put it, when you come to Christ, he gives you two things. One, a cross to die on, and two, eternal life. There is a price for following Christ. It demands everything from you. Everything. But oh, how glorious, how glorious the culmination of his kingdom, beloved. Amen? How glorious that beyond this life, because of the risen Christ, we have hope. And that hope, as Peter puts it, is, 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 will not pass away. It is indestructible, incorruptible, and will not pass away, reserved in heaven for you if you are in Christ. What a beautiful, beautiful reality. That's the gospel message that they proclaimed. We don't do anything innovative here. We don't. We are fallen in a long line of, of servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to rescue people from the domain of darkness, being instruments of that. God is the one who rescues people from the domain of darkness and transfers them into the kingdom of His beloved Son. See? We have the privilege of being a part of that. So what I'm asking you is, are you burdened for the lost? Are you burdened for, for Jesus' mission if you love Him? Are you burdened for Him? Are you burdened for His kingdom? If you discovered, if you discovered the greatest healing medicine for the most devastating disease of mankind, would you hide it? Yes or no? Listen to me. You do have the medicine for the most devastating disease called sin that leads to eternal separation of people from their creator and eternity in hell. We do have it. Why are we concealing the message, beloved? Why? Jesus builds His church. I believe in that. I believe in the sovereignty of our King. I believe that He's the one who brings fruit forward in His church. But we are the instruments, the means by which He does that. Are we not? In the power of the Spirit. That's what Jesus' followers did. They mobilized. They proclaimed Christ resurrected. They used every opportunity to share the compelling message of Christ that perhaps some would see the beauty of Christ and join His mission. 
Let's not cop out of our mission of making disciples by punning it off on God's sovereignty, okay? We have a responsibility under the sovereignty of God to be as aggressive as we can be proclaiming a genuine message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And that's what we see these servants of Christ doing. The problem is that we are so busy investing ourselves into our little kingdoms, are we not? Rather than God's. The kingdoms of comfort and convenience. We are so fearful of even inviting people into our homes for fear that we might get a little dirty. Really? We are so afraid of of inviting people into our cliques, into our gatherings, for fear of getting a little dirty. Too many of us are more busy busy building our little kingdoms here on earth, beloved, than living to and living to ensure the American dream. Let's not become content with an us for no more mentality. Let's not become content with people transferring, believers transferring in and out of churches and trying on churches like they're an old pair of shoes. Are we growing because we have church transfers? Or are we growing because there are new converts here at Calvary? Are there baby believers coming to know Christ and then we're taking them and starting to feed them the milk of the word and growing them? Are we making disciples or not? Are we burdened for the unconverted? Our hearts are too earthly, beloved. We are so divided. And if this is you this morning and you're convicted by this, I would remind you of Jesus' warning in Luke 12. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And then in verse 29 he says, And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek first, and another account says, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Whose kingdom should we be investing ourselves into? God's kingdom, not ourselves, beloved. Not ourselves. And listen to me. The bold proclamation of the gospel is not optional, is it? We are under orders. That is the tone of Jesus' words in this passage. Verse 2, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Then in verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. These are future verbs, but with with a force of commands. Who is in charge? The sovereign Lord exalted King Jesus. He is in charge. This is not optional. We live as if this is optional. And I plead with you, if you are not sharing the message of Christ and making disciples, you are being disobedient to your first occupation here on earth. Catch that? And I remind you, any spiritual gift that you have as a believer, any ability is to be used for His kingdom. Any resources that you have, your time and your money and your family is to be invested into the kingdom of the exalted Christ. You own nothing. Christ owns you if you're a believer. He owns you. Have you forgotten that the Lamb of God purchased your soul from the domain of darkness and transferred your soul into the kingdom of of His Father? Have you forgotten that? So that you and I are invested into 
the kingdom of God as instruments for His use. So we don't exist for ourselves. We exist to exalt Christ. And everything we have belongs to Him, beloved. And we better realize this sooner or later before God yanks it out of our hands. Takes it away from your hands and says, the reason why I'm taking this away from you is because you have been hoarding your abilities and your gifts and your resources and not investing them into my kingdom, which is the reason why you have them. Everything we have, everything that we have been given, beloved, is for advancing the kingdom of God. Everything. Everything. We have to get to work. All the more. And those of you who have been working, praise the Lord for you. Excel still more. And we know and we're comforted by the reality that the exalted Christ has made full provision We're not wandering aimlessly, wondering what our purpose is. He has given us a glorious purpose to continue His work. We have the mighty power to accomplish that purpose, the Holy Spirit who lives permanently in us. And how do we do that? We boldly proclaim the saving message of the gospel. We keep dropping the bomb on people, right? The bomb of the message of Christ. Beloved, I pray that we fulfill our mission as a church, as individuals and as a church that... One day when Christ returns, we might be found faithful to his final parting words, that which is most precious to King Jesus, our loving Savior. And leave us with these words of 1 Corinthians fifteen, fifty-eight, where Paul tells us that in view of the resurrection, in view of the risen Christ, that it's a reality, that it's a fact, in view of the risen, exalted Christ, therefore, my beloved, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh God, give us a greater, greater realization of our mission here on earth. Help us to remember, Lord, that we have work to do, that we have a glorious purpose to proclaim your name, that we have mighty enabling and empowerment to accomplish the task. And that, Lord, we do this by boldly proclaiming the gospel, first of all, through the message, the proclamation of the Christ, and then through the way that we live, Father, adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect in our lives. We ask for your blessing upon the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.